the EPS Phenotyping About Face. This week, DNA phenotyping, something you probably haven't heard of before, was everywhere. And then the EPS tried to make it nowhere after they were called out on their bunk science. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 193. This episode, based on the DNA sampled from the spittle on our microphone droplets, is hosted by two white males from Europe. Can you be more specific? Like, (laughs) I'm picturing those people right now in my head. People heard podcasts hosted by white guys, and they pictured us with full lumberjack beards. Mm. Wonder why that is. On to the rapid fire. The city of Edmonton has received a Municipal Excellence Award for red tape reduction in recognition of its project to streamline the permitting and approval process. The award for the victory is Daniel Smith, and Edmonton should pray that the UCP do not alter the deal further. The University of Alberta has released its building-specific ventilation data in an effort to help students assess their COVID-19 risk. At the top of the charts for air replacement is the Old Arts Building, which replaced its air 29 times per hour via ventilation. Said the head of building management at the U of A, quote, our buildings and their ventilation are designed around the building's intended use. We looked at the intended course load for this building and determined that the endless pontificating the first year philosophy students showing off in class would require substantial air turnover to remove and replace all that hot gas. Edmonton is the first Canadian city to receive the designation of UNESCO Learning City. At time of recording, I'm not sure if that means we're a good city to learn in, we're a good city to learn about, or if the city has become sentient and is itself learning. And unfortunately, I really don't want to take the time to learn. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast from the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and the podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or check it out online at thewellendowedpodcast.com. The EPS was not doing themselves any favors this week. That's how you know it's a typical week in the city of Edmonton. They released an image that used very, very bunk science to project a potential DNA-based image of a suspect in a sexual assault. We're going to get into how none of that is real and why it's problematic, but uh, we figured the best way to cover this story and to talk about it was to invite someone who knows a little bit more about it. So we'd like to introduce you to Bashir Mohammed. He's an Edmonton-based writer, and he's the former co-chair of policing for Black Lives Matter Edmonton. Thanks for coming to talk to us, Bashir. Yeah, no, I'm really glad to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. So Bashir, maybe you could just start with what was your reaction when you saw the news this week that I I think the police put out basically in a tweet, you know, saying that we have uh, used DNA for the first time in our history to generate this made up image of a person. It, It was interesting to see because it was like the police literally tweeting out racial profiling, like a method that by its definition is profiling an image of somebody based off general racial aspects. That was my initial reaction. And the reason for me saying that and emphasizing that is because, you know, I spent a good part of my life uh, researching the Edmonton Police Service, 
through BLM Edmonton, me and a group of people released data that showed that, you know, the Edmonton Police Service disproportionately carded Black Indigenous people. So it was kind of funny and weird to see this open admission to racially profiling and posting it with no person in EPS saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Almost like they were, you know, just proud of the idea of using this technology, right? Like they were so wrapped up in the idea that they used this technology for the first time that maybe somebody didn't stop and think, is this a good idea? I saw uh, a law professor who uh, listeners probably know from Twitter, um, Ubaka Ogbogu, who, who tweeted, you know, if they had confidence in the photo, they would have just put out an APB. They wouldn't have put out a tweet that said, hey, look at our brand new method of investigating crimes, right? They're using uh, technology to do this from a company called Parabon Nanolabs, which I've never heard of, but you are familiar with, Bashir. Yeah, this, this company is controversial. Uh, law enforcement agencies all across North America use them. They're interesting because they claim they're able to build a portrait of a suspect based off DNA. Now, that practice itself, just to be clear, is bad science. There was a geneticist, Dr. Adam Rutherford, written extensively on this topic, said, you can't make facial profiles or accurate pigmentation predictions from DNA. This is dangerous snake oil. And that got like 60,000 likes. Like it's kind of weird the corner of the internet this whole thing has entered. But that statement by itself shows that, you know, this is very bunk science. But the reason police use this is because for some reason, this company was able to convince law enforcement agencies that this type of stuff is able to solve crimes. To be clear, though, DNA uh, analysis of crime scenes and the type of work this company does actually has had some like notable impacts. So like the Golden State Killer, I don't know if you were following that a few years ago, but they found him because they got his DNA, used a family like heritage tracing website. Like ancestry.ca or one of those kind of things, right? Yeah. yeah. And they found a relative. That's how they were able to narrow the list. Now, this is not what happened in this case. They are only using the DNA to come up with the fact that the person is Black. They have a 98% chance of having brown eyes, 90% chance of having brown hair, and a 50% chance they're from East Africa. Uh, I think 25% chance they're from West Africa, and then another percentage that they're from South Africa. So totally different situations. The other difference here is that they're creating a literal image so it's different types of policing, different types of the use of this technology. To be clear, when we talk about this being bunk science, we're not saying no one's disputing the fact that the DNA shows that this is a black dude. The dispute is creating an image that represents an entire continent, mm. you know, basically just creates a image of a young black dude and says, this is your criminal. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about in, you know, in the tech world right now, everybody's really excited about stable diffusion and Dolly to these AI algorithms that can generate images. You just give it some text, describe what you want and, and they'll generate an image. And some of these companies have gone to great lengths to, to make sure that if you type in criminal, it doesn't just produce a black person, even if that's what yep. the training data shows. And it almost struck me that the police, you know, may as well have just used one of those services, but the mention of the DNA tries to give it this whiff of legitimacy, right? It tries to make yeah. it seem like it's more accurate than, you know, it, it isn't much different than, you know, these AI generating image algorithms. Yeah. And it's super interesting too, because if you look at it, a decent amount of reaction was very supportive saying, you know, the science is amazing. When you look at the actual Edmonton press release, like the initial one, they stress that, you know, it's this is not an accurate picture. Yeah. Then why include the picture? There's a 
professor from the University of Amsterdam, Dr. Amade Micherik. Uh, she studies the science of forensic science. And she wrote a 2020 paper specifically about this company. And she says, this novel technology d does not produce the face of an individual suspect, but that of a suspect population. The paper itself is interesting, and I recommend people look at it because she talks all about why people are obsessed with a face and how, even though the face is wildly inaccurate, how it motivates you know people to be interested in these horrific cases. She concludes her paper by saying that by evoking emotion, the face also generates engagement with the case and attention to the case might wither, but the face makes it concrete and keeps the case alive, which to me is interesting. So we have this crime. We know for sure the suspect is black. All things considered, like if, if, if you know that, just put out a normal police bulletin. Like it's mm. very common, suspect, black, male, whatever. No one has a problem with that. By creating the face, EPS did something that I would argue is fairly intentional, but they were trying to evoke that emotion. Now, the question is, what emotion does that trigger in people? To me, it's Black criminality, this idea that Black people are more likely to be bad people. And if you look at Edmonton's history, this depiction of Black people has been very common. I've written extensively about this, you know, how the initial resistance to Black immigration was due to this danger of Black men, of Black men being dangerous, but also Black women being criminals, robbing people. There's tons and tons and tons of Edmonton Journal articles that refer to Black women using horrible names and saying how every day two or three of them would end up in court for committing a crime. It's interesting to see how this actually manifests itself and via Edmonton's history, via the history of policing in Edmonton. More often than not, it's the criminalization of Black people which I think is why the Edmonton Police Service decided to uh, step back from their press release a couple of days ago. There is an argument to be made that the EPS were just being wonkish. They loved this new technology. They were excited about this new way to break a case. So they were excited about this technology, and that's why they released it. This is excitement about good policing. And you probably, having looked at the history, have some context to say why that might not be true here. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, for context, um, when I started getting involved with Black Lives Matter Edmonton, police were adamant that they did not police people differently based off race. For some context, like pre-2017 Edmonton, uh, the main obstacle Black Lives Matter received was from people saying these problems don't exist here and we're just bringing American problems. So when we got that data, it, it kind of surprised people. Like in 2017, I'm, I'm sure you remember, like it was super mm -hmm. controversial. Um, and then summer 2020 hit. Um, I went to go to military stuff. So I kind of left and came back. And suddenly there's just kind of this default understanding that, yes, there is disproportionate policing within our city. I think that's important context because at best, this whole situation is them having bad critical thinking. At worst, it's intentional racism. Now, what I think is happening is somewhere in the middle. There definitely are cops out there who are super racist. But I think the reason we have Black people more likely to be carded, uh, more likely to be charged for really like basic offenses, if, if we've established that, if we establish that historically and presently, there is a racial disparity in policing, then you know, them releasing this like does not exist in a vacuum. It, it exists within an active context. So when I say it's bad critical thinking, before they release anything like this, somebody should have said, hey, wait a minute. And the fact they didn't shows that there's a failure uh, within our police department. Now, I don't want to give them that much charity, 
but I think that's, you know, at least something to concede that that could have happened. But at the end of the day, this event is another page in the long history of the Edmonton Police Service, but also Edmonton and, and, and the way uh, Black people have, have depicted throughout history. One of the detectives with the sexual assault section in the original news release described it as essentially a last resort. Um, but then, as you pointed out, they walked that back. And in fact, someone did take ownership for not stopping and saying, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't yeah. do this. And that was Enina O'Kerry, who's the chief operating officer for the Community Safety and Wellbeing Bureau at EPS. And in a statement said, there's an important need to balance the potential investigative value with the ultra real risks. And then at the bottom listed three actions, well, two actual actions yeah. that the EPS is going to take. And I wondered if you could give us your reaction to those actions. They are that they were going to remove the visuals, which they did from the news release and their social media yeah. profiles. But of course, we know by this point, it's been shared ad nauseum by everybody else. So the images aren't <laughs> yeah. really gone. Yeah. And number two, that they would review their internal processes for these kinds of tools. And then the third, which is not really an action, is continue to prioritize and explore every conceivable and appropriate means to find justice for the victim. Yeah. So my initial reaction is that it's just the reaction to bad press. Like they they were roasted hard for this. There is one thing I will note though, for the first half of the statement, they're just justifying this. Imagine the criminal was a white guy and that this guy is like super dangerous. He did something horrible. Now I'm 89.9% sure this guy's white. There's a 95% chance he has blue eyes and a 90% chance he has blonde hair. Now there's a 50% chance this guy is from Sweden. 25% chance this guy is from Russia. And a 25% chance this guy is from the United Kingdom. If you close your eyes, could you, could you imagine that person? I mean, maybe, but we got to keep in mind, we don't actually know the age. Mm. We don't actually know how much they weigh. And like police admit this. So it's really hard to give them a good faith interpretation of, oh, they just messed up. They knew exactly what they were doing. They put an image up of a young black kid, essentially, and said, this is who we're looking for. In my mind, you know, if you go back to the early 1900s, you'll see this a lot. You'll see articles, you know, looking for, instead of saying black person, they use the N-word. But like looking for the N-word who did this. And it's basically the same thing. Like, it's just a generic photo of a black dude. Hmm. And I think it was 50% sure it's East African, 25% sure West African. That's a big difference. Me, a Somali guy, I look very different than some dude in West Africa. This whole situation is absurd. It's straight out of a dystopian sci-fi book, but it happened and it happened in our city and and we shouldn't be able to forget about it. We shouldn't ignore the implications of this because, you know, my biggest fear is, you know, in a week or two, we forget about this. It's just one chapter of our city's long and very disturbing history. Well, despite the EPS example of making something quickly and then throwing it out immediately afterwards, Edmonton is hoping to get away from single-use items, specifically single-use plastic items. Uh, City Council this week has approved the single-use item reduction bylaw. Yeah, this bylaw has been in discussion for a little while, got delayed, uh, but this week finally got approved at public hearing. It will take effect July 1, 2023. So it's a little bit after the federal rule, which comes into effect this December, but the federal rules deal with plastic. Edmonton's bylaw goes beyond that to try and stop the or reduce the use of all kinds of single-use items. So these are things like 
napkins and cutlery, coffee cups, styrofoam containers, cups, things like that. So styrofoam things are banned. Restaurants can't give you a paper cup if you're eating in, if you're dining in. And now accessories like those utensils and things will only be available on request or self-serve. So they can't automatically give it to you. I don't know about you, Troy, but I have a drawer full of napkins and cutlery and stuff that has come from, you know, takeout orders in the last couple of years. I'm actually getting quite the drawer of the plastic takeout containers. Unfortunately, I take out at a rate much higher than I give away baked goods in those plastic containers. Yes, this is the problem. In the news release about this, it says 450 million single-use items are thrown in the garbage each year in Edmonton. And, you know, a good chunk of those are plastic bags, which are now banned. And you have to uh, pay a fee, at least 15 cents for a paper bag and at least a dollar for a new reusable shopping bag, which, you know, reusable shopping bags are a good idea in theory. But I also have a closet full of those. I want to tell you what's frustrating me about this item. It reminded me a lot of the bike plan approval for the $175 million to complete the district network connector, where the response was like, well, why are we spending all this money? Why don't we spend it on affordable housing? Why can't council just like poor people? Why do they want to punish poor people for being poor? What about people who are homeless? These sorts of refrains that I find very frustrating because it usually comes from people who didn't really care about that before, but are Mm. mostly using it as an argument for something they don't like. And it happened absolutely with this single-use item. We hear about the punishing effect of we're charging more for a reusable bag, $1 for a reusable bag. Why is council punishing poor people? This is going to break the bank for people at grocery stores. On one hand, I'm frustrated because it seems a bit of whataboutism that from people who are disingenuously using that. Yeah. But on the other hand, what what is this obsession, Mac? Why do you need a bag at a grocery store? <laughs> because we just can't imagine a situation. Safeway has always given us a plastic bag. Therefore, you need a bag. I challenge you, dear listener, don't use a bag at a grocery store. It's better. You don't put bags in your pantry. <laughs> I actually really uh, enjoy, like we we have throughout the pandemic been doing click and collect with um, Superstore. And throughout most of the pandemic, they would fill the back of the car with plastic bags. And now they just put it in boxes, which they already have because they unload stuff onto the shelves in those boxes. And it's great. I have a little, you know, one of those little fold out metal dollies. I just put the boxes on that and I wheel it upstairs. I don't need a bag at all. You're totally right. If you're at a grocery store, you've got a cart or you've got a basket. You can bring that right to your car or to your bike outside. You can load up your bags and you can bring them home. You can bring your own boxes you can bring your own reusable bags none of this is a problem and the only issue is people who can't remember to bring a bag and if one dollar is a completely punishing amount for a person they can't afford to eat because they're paying an extra one dollar for a bag i think those people because that one dollar is so punishing will remember their reusable bag. Yeah, and there's no shortage of uh, places to get these reusable bags. Yeah, I think this is an important thing. I feel like somebody should have maybe read the news release before it went out because the mayor says this is an exciting first step towards climate resiliency. I really hope this isn't our first step. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he, he goes on to say, like, we all have a part to play in protecting and preserving our environment. I think that's true. I think some of the reaction here is that, you know, it feels a little bit like individuals are being targeted, right? You've got to pay 15 cents more for a bag or a dollar more for a bag. You know, you don't get these things unless you ask for them rather than, you know, we've talked about in the show before, something like 
extended producer responsibility where we're going after the companies that are the manufacturing this waste in the first place to try to help offset the cost and the the impact on the climate. So I feel like there's maybe a little bit of a reaction in there, but in general, I agree with your take. I'm going to disagree a little bit. I don't really feel like this is individual action. Sure, it's encouraging people not to use that one plastic bag, but I think the real encouragement is the grocery stores. I mean, Safeway is happy to give you a bunch of plastic bags. I remember when grocery stores started charging for plastic bags. You'd go to Superstore and they were charging five cents. So you'd cram it all into one bag and call it good to go. But then you go to Safeway, which didn't charge for plastic bags. And each jug of milk goes in its own plastic bag. (laughs) Why don't I throw three or four of them in case they rip? I was getting a mountain of plastic. And I feel like this is as much to convince grocery stores to develop alternatives as it is the user to use less. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, restaurants too, right? Don't throw those things in the bag without thinking about it or a stack of napkins, right? Like wait till somebody actually needs it before you put that out there because it'll probably just end up in the garbage anyway. The Clairview Rec Center sign is destined for the garbage after council approved a renaming. The Clairview Community Recreation Center will now be rebranded as the Jumpstart Community Recreation Center, which didn't include Canadian Tire in there as an asset for this naming, but council voted 8-5 to move ahead with the renaming. Yeah, the Jumpstart comes from Canadian Tire Jumpstart Charities, of course, and this has been a controversial item, you know, Councillor Jens and some others have been quite opposed to this. As you said, it's eight to five in favor of a 10-year agreement. So it'll be renamed the Jumpstart Community Recreation Center. Although I think they had a longer version, which is the Jumpstart Community Recreation Center in Clareview. (laughs) And, you know, on the one hand, this is like, okay, maybe we should really think about this. Should we be selling naming rights? Is this a good value for the city? Are we going to be able to generate some revenue here that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise? On the other hand, I'm not sure it matters at the end of the day. You know what? My mom still calls it the Coliseum. People are just going to call it the Clairview Rec Center. Like if the official name is something else, is that such a big deal? Okay, but maybe let's meet at the Shaw Conference Center to talk about this. (laughs) People call it the Shaw because that's what it was for so long, right? Nobody calls it the Edmonton Convention Center. But had it been called, you know, Edmonton Convention Center, probably, well, actually don't. I take that back. Lots of people just call it the Convention Center. I hear what you're saying. And in general... I can't really care that much about it because you're right. People just say, I'm going to the rec center and you use contextual and geographical clues to figure out which rec center you're talking about. But like, this is a cautionary tale and the cautionary tale comes down the QE2 highway when Mm. you drive past Lacombe and you see that blue sign indicating you about services and it directs you to the Gary Moe Auto Group Sportsplex. Yeah, it's a slippery slope to get there in the same way that I would kind of prefer that our public transit buses didn't have ads. We make some money by selling uh, Amazon Prime, some prime real estate on the side of our LRT cars. And that way they can go over bridges and you can see some stars faced whizzing by. But the flip side is now I can't see out this window because there's a wrap around it. And it feels like my train is capitalistic rather than a nice public service. A little bit of extra money, that's great. But we do have to be careful that we're not overcapitalizing our public services. So am I happy about this? No. Am I furious about this? Nah. 
Yeah, I'm kind of the same. Like I, I agree. I, I hear what you're saying, right? We don't want to brand everything. That's a bad idea. It is concerning that counselors said, you know, that they'll probably explore other renaming opportunities now to sell the naming rights for a whole bunch of other buildings. Like I don't want the whole city to be blanketed in, in ads or whatever. But you know, I think administration, to their credit followed through on something that council asked for, which is like, you know, diversify, find some creative ways to generate some other revenue to cover costs, you know, in in the face of uh, declining grants and and support from other orders of government. And they went and they did that. So I'm not terribly upset about it like you. I'm also not, uh, you know, super excited by it. I do think the cautionary tale point is a good one. I think the most frustrating part about this is we just don't know how much money this is. Like, if Canadian Tire is paying $80,000 for this, bad plan. Stupid plan. Let's not do this. <laughs> yeah. If Canadian Tire is paying $15 million for this, what else can we sell to Canadian Tire? That's a great <laughs> deal. Unfortunately, that's foip hidden information. It, it is harmful to business interests for the city. So we're not going to know, at least anytime soon, how much they paid. Are you sure we don't know, Troy? Because I remember seeing, I think it was an article from CTV. We'll put this in the show notes, but it had a quote from Councillor Michael Jans, who's, as I mentioned, has been the most vocal opponent of selling our naming rights. And he said, quote, that we would be embarking on a path to sell five rec centers at $450,000, which is a rounding error in the grand scheme of our city budget. That's really concerning to me, end quote. So that's pretty close to 80000 if that's for five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that does sound like a bad idea. We're we're going to have to check up on that in the future. And Councillor Jans, if you're listening to this, did you just accidentally secret airplane the rec center costs? Check on that. Well, council wasn't just renaming rec centers this week. They were also debating whether or not to hear information. Uh, maybe I'm editorializing, but they received a report for information on an Edmonton police jurisdictional scan. This is what we talked about last week. But whether they actually received that report for information, that was that issue this week. Yeah, this report generated a lot of discussion. We mentioned it last week. Councillors were, you know, hearing all of that from the public, from constituents. Councillor Paquette in particular, you know, said, I've got people emailing me about this, even if there isn't a conflict of interest there's the perception of a conflict of interest. He said, did no one stop to say this might be problematic in the eyes of the public? Referring, of course, to the fact that Police Chief Dale McPhee is the president of this consulting organization, the Community Safety Knowledge Alliance, which was hired by the police commission to produce a report on the efficacy of the police funding formula. So that's the conflict of interest. Councillor Erin Rutherford was another person at city council who was quite concerned about this. And she actually proposed that instead of receiving the report for information, which is the standard thing that city council does when it has a report on the agenda and there's no further action to be taken, but they need some way to signal that the item is closed. They receive it for information. She proposed that instead they should remove one of the attachments, the most concerning one in the conflict of interest issue, from the report before they did that. This was a whole half hour, maybe 45 minute discussion that resulted counselors asking questions of the clerk about what this means. And I thought the clerk's response was really quite funny. You know, she said, this doesn't do anything. I am not removing (laughs) anything from the internet. And it's like, why did we spend half an hour talking about this? In the end, it didn't go forward. And the whole thing was received for information. And, you know, Councillor Rutherford and and Councillor Jans were the two who voted against it. And in her rationale for proposing this amendment, you know, she said, 
my own moral principles and ethics would guide me to vote no on this. But if I just vote no on this, people might get the wrong idea about why I voted no. So I think it was important to have the conversation. And Troy, I'm thinking she could have just spoke to that when she voted no. And the same information would have been on the record without a whole half hour rigmarole about whether or not to remove a document that would remain on the internet. Counselors, I don't know if you know this, but it is really hard to figure out how you actually voted on a particular item. That information is not readily exposed and is not conveniently available unless you're watching the live stream and someone happens to screenshot the voting screen. Otherwise, it's kind of just a number of how many people voted in favor and against. Speaking to it, as counselors like to do for most of the day, it's really the most effective way. And then send out a newsletter, send out a tweet. If you're concerned about your constituents misinterpreting what you're doing, perhaps try communicating with them. I always <laughs> think that's a great idea. It is a good strategy. As callous as I'm being, I don't know that I actually disagree with what Aaron Rutherford did here. Making jokes aside, making this motion indicates to administration, I would think, that this is a little bit more severe than just politicking. This is an indication that council wanted this process to be done a little bit differently. Now, of course, administration and the clerk are throwing up their hands saying, eh, the report's there. It's not my problem. And the clerk is right. Council, of course, is once again frustrated that it has really no mechanism of control or to enforce accountability from the Edmonton Police Service. And the police commission just doesn't seem to be getting it done. Yeah. And a lot of these administrative snafus and procedural rigmaroles, they're all based on this fundamental frustration that council just wants to be able to do something. And maybe there's something in the rules that let us do something and they just haven't quite found it yet. <laughs> I think you're right that maybe this is a way just to raise the profile of this. I don't think it goes to the level that Councillor Cartmel was talking about. He was opposed to removing the document because he felt that by doing so, it would implicate all of the other people like MNP and other organizations that were involved in this report and would call into question all of their professional ethics and all of the professional ethics of everybody at the city administration who is involved in this. Like he kind of went to a bit of an extreme and I don't think that's what it is. I think you're right. I think it is about the police commission and the, the city council's lack of control or any any sort of ability to, to really contribute to the oversight that I think they want to see about the police. Of course, the one control that we know Edmonton City Council has is decision on funding for the Edmonton police. Though, uh, with the funding formula, they may be voting to give that up. Uh, we talked about the funding formula last week, and we don't have a bunch more to add other than we're probably going to wait a little bit longer to decide on this funding formula. Yeah, the takeaway, the highlight thing this week was that City Council could have voted on this on Monday. That was the recommendation from administration, adopt the new thing. They chose not to do that. The mayor actually took control of the meeting quite firmly and said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a presentation about the funding formula. We're going to have run one round of clarifying questions. And then we're going to wait until Friday to talk about this further. And Everybody seemed to be going along with this plan, except for Councillor Karen Principe, who spoke up and said, oh, no, 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 I'm voting. I'm ready to vote yes right now to this funding formula. And it almost forced a vote like they would have had to vote to decide to delay the item until Friday. She pretty quickly retracted that, said, OK, I'll go along with the group no doubt wanting to avoid being the only, you know, no vote to that motion. And so they went, they went ahead with the mayor's plan. They got this uh, round of clarifying questions. And what stood out to me, Troy, in listening to that, 
is that the vast majority of city council, they're all very smart people, are having a hard time understanding this funding formula that was put forward. How does it work? Where do the calculations come from? What does it mean? The fact that Councilor Principe was ready to just vote yes is a pretty clear indication to me that she too has no idea uh, <laughs> how the funding formula works and, and was voting not because she thinks it's a good funding formula, but because she wants to have a funding formula for the police, which is fine. She can choose whatever reason she wants to vote in favor of something. But this got pushed to Friday. I think based on what Councilor said this week, it'll get pushed further because we learned that although the police commission worked with administration on the funding formula, the governors, so the commissioners themselves, have not yet had an opportunity to discuss the funding formula. Their next meeting is October 20th. And so I feel like on Friday, there's a pretty good chance we're going to see council ask a whole bunch of questions, try and you know get some more information, maybe even make some amendments, but won't actually vote on the funding formula until later this month. Well, uh, this episode will be coming out Friday at noon. So as you're listening to this, you can probably tune in to a city council meeting and determine if we were right or wrong. But we're probably right. Just like you have the right in Alberta to choose who provides your electricity, natural gas, and internet. Uh, winter is coming, and with energy usage for all Albertans increasing, now is a great time for you, dear listener, to look at your utility bill and ensure you're on the best plan. This episode, of course, being brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy, and you can feel good knowing you are supporting a local business and helping to give back to communities with your utility bills. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this week. Mac, before we let our listeners go... You've been doing stuff at Taproot Edmonton. This is a podcast for sure, but like Taproot does other stuff, right? We publish original local journalism every single day of the week. We publish a newsletter called The Pulse, which is uh, our, our original journalism, as well as things we have curated from around the web that are relevant to you as an Edmontonian. So if you want to follow along with what's happening at City Council throughout the week, you want the latest on what's going on with the police, you should definitely subscribe to The Pulse. It's free. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Bashir. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.